invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 10 and picking up on this incredible section. I rejoice in every verse as we come to the next one to see what the Lord unfolds for us in these verses. And as Paul has been laying out and defending his gospel, the presentation of the gospel, the need for the gospel, he demonstrated in chapter 1, verse 16, through chapter 3, verse 20, the universal need for Jew and Gentile for the gospel of God. Then from 321 through chapter 5, he demonstrates the riches of the gospel of of salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ and demonstrated that this was preached in the Old Testament. It was preached to Abraham. It was preached to David. It was preached to the fathers and is now presented to us so that what we believe today is not anything different than what God had always proclaimed. It is consistent with God's message. Then we share the implications of the gospel, the transformed life in Romans chapter 6, that, that the gospel does not nullify the law, but, uh, but the law isn't evil. The law actually is holy, just, and good, Romans chapter 7. Then we saw in chapter 8 the, the work of the Spirit of God in the believer, that we are preserved and protected. The Spirit is at work within us, that we are striving. But all of that raises the most obvious question. If God is doing this work, and if God is, the gospel is going forth with power and people are being saved, what about the Jew? What about Israel? What do we do with their rebellion? Especially in light of chapter 8, when God says that he works all things together for good, and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Does the church have something that the Jew doesn't have? Are we given a special promise, something different? Are we given something that the Israelite didn't have that separates us and shows that God has more of a love for us than for them? How are we to understand the rebellion of Israel? And that's what Paul brings up here in Romans 9, 10, and 11. He brings up Israel's rebellion. He answers the question of what God is doing among Israel. And he demonstrates, ultimately, as we're going to see by the time we finish chapter 11, God still has a plan for Israel. But before that plan, there is a present rebellion. There is an obstinate rejection of God demonstrated among God's people, the Jews. And in light of that, it's raised some questions. Does that mean the promises of God have failed? Does that mean that God has failed in some way? And Paul has answered in chapter 9, absolutely not. God's promises haven't failed. In fact, he's going to carry out his promises. He's going to fulfill them. God isn't going to be thwarted by the unbelief of the Israelite. He is going to accomplish his good purposes. And that God is still sovereign and God is accomplishing his good purposes. And he will continue to accomplish his good purposes. God is fair in all of his dealings. God is not thwarted by the unbelief of Israel because he is sovereignly directing and accomplishing his good will. Then that raises the obvious question, all right, well, if he's sovereign, if he is directing, if he's saving, if he is accomplishing his good purposes, then what about faith? What about repentance? What about the unbeliever here, the unbelieving Jew? And that's where Paul turns his attention From Romans chapter 9 and verse 30 through chapter 10, he explains now then the human responsibility. 
After emphasizing God's sovereignty and his saving and his right to save as God, because he is God, very God, and he can do as he pleases because he is the creator and nobody came to him and gave him instruction when he created all things. And when he saved those whom he saved, and when he shows mercy on whom he shows mercy, he has the right to do this as his sovereign prerogative as God. It raises the question, what about our free will? What about our need of repentance? What about faith? And this is what's answered for us here in these verses. Now, we get into, and we started this a couple weeks ago, we looked at verses 30 through 33. Ultimately, why was Israel rejected? Well, they were rejected because of their unbelief. They were rejected because they were holding on to righteousness in the law by their own effort rather than attaining it by faith. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But... Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. The Jews who strove, who were striving to seek righteousness, never attained that righteousness. But these Gentiles, believing on the gospel, believing upon Christ, received the righteousness of God. Why did the Jew, why is the Jew under condemnation? Why is the unbelieving Jew under condemnation? Is because they did not receive the righteousness of God by faith. Now, this poses another tension for us, and I kind of left us in this hovering theological tension that is over this text, and that tension is well, then if God is sovereign, And if he's the one who's choosing, and if he's granting faith, and if he is calling people to himself, then what is our attitude towards the unbelieving Jew? What is our attitude towards the unbeliever who may or may not be elect that we don't know? What is our attitude towards the lost? And this is exactly where Paul takes us in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. He demonstrates for us what our attitude ought to be. It is interesting when we start to read the Word of God and we come across these majestic themes of God's choosing, of God's sovereignty. Like God says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every, or with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When we start wrestling with these themes of God's choosing us, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption. We start wrestling with the themes of election and predestination and sovereignty, it starts to raise all kinds of questions in our hearts and mind. And one of the questions that come up in our heart and mind is, are we warring against God in some way if we are praying for an unbeliever? We don't know what God's plan is for this particular person. Is there something within us that's hindering us uh, if we're praying for them? Are we going against the will of God? These questions fill our minds, and some might even logically conclude, well, if God's sovereign, and if he elects, and if he chooses those whom he will, and if he predestined, then he's going to accomplish his good purposes, and he could do it without us. 
So we don't have to pray. We don't have to do anything because God's just going to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Some have logically deduced that and have then determined this must be our response. After all, they conclude, you don't want to pray against the will of God. You don't want to pray against God's purposes. So might as well not pray at all and just let God sort it all out. Problem is, first of all, that goes against the direct commands of Scripture. And second of all, it goes against the examples for us in Scripture. You remember our Scripture reading for us this morning? Paul says, pray for all men, those in authority, for kings and rulers. We are commanded to pray for them. And then it modeled by Paul here in Romans chapter 10. So the problem of sovereignty and human responsibility is not a problem that we have to worry about and try to reconcile. It's a problem that God can reconcile. We're just obedient to both the commands and the examples that God lays out for us. And here's the example. We see this marvelous example of the Apostle Paul demonstrated here in Romans 10. In fact, what I see here in Romans chapter 10 is Paul's magnanimous love for those who are lost and his understanding for their true condition. A magnanimous love for the lost demonstrated in a rich forgiveness towards them and at the same time a keen awareness for why they are in that condition. And that's what we're going to learn out of these four verses. We're going to see this attitude and this understanding that Paul has towards the lost. Look, the scriptures are replete with God's expression of his view towards the rebellious. It says in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The sending of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world is a demonstration of God's love for all of mankind. It's not the same, but it is a demonstration of a genuine expression of love. 1 Timothy 4.10, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. There is a demonstration of the marvelous work of Christ that Christ is the only way of salvation for all. And God demonstrates this love. But that doesn't take away the tensions for us. It doesn't take away the difficulties. Just to say, okay, well, if God loves everybody, if God has a genuine love for everyone and a desire for everyone to be saved, then how come everyone isn't saved? Well, we come to the answer right here. We come to the understanding of man's rebellion right here in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And Paul, again, has been starting to explain this from verse 30. It is the unbelief of Israel that is the problem. They reject God. They rebelled against him. They were hostile to him. So the sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies that we have to reconcile. These aren't things that we have to go around and begin to, to uh, try to make them coexist. These are truths and tensions brought out in scriptures that we have to operate within. I understand the tensions. I mean, J.I. Packer did write a book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, so I know it is a struggle on our hearts to reconcile these themes. So I just want to draw you to Paul's example. 
Because I believe here that Paul just walks for us through these tensions. And again, having just defended God in chapter 9, 1 through 29, and defended God's right to be God and God's right to choose and that God's purposes will not be thwarted, and just defending God's purposes even in Israel's rebellion, he then turns the table and reminds us of our responsibility and their responsibility. And he models for us our example. So how we are to view the unrepentant as we proclaim the gospel. Now notice how Paul does this here. Verse 1. As I said, there are two aspects to this. The first is Paul's own attitude towards the unrepentant, towards the unbelieving. And then from verses 2 through 4 is the nature of the unrepentant, why they're in that state, what it is about them, their condition is described in verses 2 through 4, and we're only going to be able to begin to touch that second one. So notice, the first of all, the attitude of the Apostle Paul. It says this, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Saying, I long for their salvation. Now, it's interesting here. You have to understand the Apostle Paul's environment. You have to understand his particular relationship to the Jewish community. Obviously, born in a Jewish family, born Saul of Tarsus, born in a privileged family that had dual citizenship, where he was both a Jew but also a Roman by citizenship. He has a privileged position, a unique role, trained and the best teacher in the, at the time, a Jewish teacher, skilled in the law of Moses, skilled in the understanding of the traditions and the customs. But, but Paul also was heavily persecuted by the Jews. There's anyone who had the, a reason within himself to be hostile to a particular people, it would have been Paul. Paul was spurned by them because he had turned from their traditions to Christ. They persecuted Paul. I mean, if they had any kind of significant mirrors at that time, all Paul had to do is look in the mirror at his back and see the scars. And every one of those scars would be a reminder from the times that he'd been flogged by the Jews because they hated his message. Every time he went to the temple and they opposed him in the temple and twisted his words, every time they took him, arrested him, had him beaten, every time they followed him around and tried to undo his message. I mean, he had to write to the Galatians to remind the Galatians that they foolishly left the gospel to follow after another message, which was not the gospel. Read the book of 2 Corinthians. A whole group of religious leaders came with their credentials seeking to undo the message of Paul so they can bind people back under the law. There was anyone who could say, you have mistreated me, you have, mistreated, you have misrepresented my message, you have sought harm for me, therefore I leave you to your own devices. It would be the Apostle Paul. And we would certainly recognize and certainly wouldn't throw any stones. Almost to say, you have a right to be angry, Paul, because after all, they have mistreated you in so many ways. Not only that, but you, these same 
individuals rejected our Messiah. They rejected Christ. They rejected the one who came, who lived a perfect life, who taught truth, who brought the will of God and, and the message of God and lived according to the will of God. They even rejected the Messiah who came to them and desired to bring restoration. So clearly, if anyone would be justified to be hostile to an unbelieving group, it would be these Jews who deserved to be mistreated for their rebellion. And yet, that's not Paul's attitude at all. Notice again, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. That phrase, my heart's desire, <clears throat> is kind of, um, kind of hard to understand here. But listen to how this exact same word is translated in other places. And I think it will make better sense to you. Matthew chapter 11, verse 26, the word is translated well-pleasing. Matthew, or Luke chapter 2, in verse 14, that same word is translated as pleased. Luke chapter 10, in verse 21, this word is translated as well-pleasing. In Ephesians 1, in verse 5, this same word is translated kind intention. Ephesians 1, 9, kind intention. Philippians 1 and verse 15, it's translated goodwill. In Philippians 2 verse 13, it's translated good pleasure. And in 2 Thessalonians 1.11, it's translated my every desire. What is he saying? My desire, my good pleasure, my, I'm pleased, I am well pleased for them. Meaning, I have a genuine care for them. I am pleased to give them what is good and what is best. These ones who have mistreated me, these ones who have harmed me, those ones who have misrepresented me, those ones who want to kill me, the very ones who want to, to destroy the very message, ministry I'm a part of, who hate my message and hate the ministry and hate the Lord, these ones, I want what's good for them. I want what's best. There's no bitterness in Paul here to the unbelieving Jew. There's no open hostility. There's no unrighteous anger. There's no sense in which he is saying, they owe me something for all the harm they've done to me. These very ones that they pray, he prays for, the very ones that he cares for them and desires their best are going to be the very ones that have him arrested, ultimately taken to Rome, which is going to lead to the end of his life. I mean, if ever there is a demonstration of an unconditional forgiveness and an unconditional care for others, it's demonstrated right here. My heart's desire, my goodwill, my good pleasure is for them. Where does forgiveness begin? It begins with a genuine desire for the good of somebody else, the one who's mistreated you. The one who has harmed you in some way is a genuine desire. I desire your good. Well before they've even demonstrated any kind of repentance, any kind of transformation yet, I want your good. More than my glory, more than what's best for me, more than my pound of flesh, more than my restoration of credibility or whatever, I want what's good for you. That's what Paul demonstrated here. My heart's desire my good will for them. It's my good pleasure for them. And the second aspect of this is my good will, my prayer to God for them 
is for their salvation. It was not just kind intentions. I will be good to you. I will be kind to you. No, I want your very best, the best possible thing for the, the one who is in open hostility to God is their salvation. It says that's what I pray for. I pray to God for them. It's for their salvation. That's the second part of Paul's character or attitude towards the unbeliever. <clears throat> it's a prayer for salvation. Prayer that they actually would turn from the air of their way, that they would turn and embrace the living God, that they would see their own unrighteousness and see their need for, for God, and they would repent of their sin and turn to the living God. So one would ask, how do you know that you have a genuine care for somebody? How do you know that you have a genuine desire for them, that you want their good and you want their best? Well, measure your prayers. Do you pray for their repentance? Do you pray for their salvation? Do you have a genuine desire to see them come to a knowledge of the faith? So Paul demonstrates here. And by the way, this is, again, solves the whole tension. Someone says, well, you, can't, you don't pray for anybody because God is sovereign. Oh, on the contrary, understanding God is sovereign and understanding that this is the example, I pray for all. Pray for all that God would save them. And I pray to the one who can save them, and I pray with confidence that God will accomplish his good will and will save. But, by the way, my understanding of sovereignty does not take away my responsibility. Matthew chapter 5 says this, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke six twenty eight, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Or 1 Timothy 2 in verse 4 says, again, God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Fact is, I don't have a problem with sovereignty and human responsibility because I'm commanded simply to pray for those who are in hostility to God. To pray for an enemy, to pray for those who mistreat, to pray for those who are in opposition to the gospel, that is what we are commanded to do. God knows how to reconcile those differences, those tensions of sovereignty and human responsibility. God resolves them for me. I don't have to worry about how they're resolved. I just need to be faithful to his example. And that's exactly what Paul demonstrates here. He has a genuine, godly love for those who harmed him, and at the same time, a genuine pursuit of their salvation. I pray that they would be saved. I don't have to worry about the secret will of God. I don't have to be worried about his decretive will. I don't have to be worried about those mysteries that are hidden in God from eternity past. In time, when he decides to make all of that known, he will. So we pray. And how would we pray? Think about it for a moment. How would we genuinely pray for the lost? Well, again, we pray for their good. We pray for their repentance. We pray for their understanding of the knowledge of God's will. We pray for them to believe. We pray for them to experience the same love of God that we have experienced. We pray for them to see the mercy of God and experience the mercy of God. We pray for them to experience the grace of God and see God's rich grace. 
We pray for them to understand peace with God so they can have both peace with God and peace with their neighbor. We pray for them to understand the riches of God's mercy found in Christ Jesus. We pray for them to turn from God, turn as an enemy currently to be a child of God. We pray for their faith, that they would believe the message of God's word and that they would understand that message, that their eyes would be opened. We pray that God would do his marvelous work in their heart. We pray that God would use his providential circumstances to drive them to the end of themselves, that they would turn to God. We pray that the God of this world who's blinded their eyes would be taken out of the way. We pray according to the scriptures. Nothing stops us because we understand God's sovereignty. It actually encourages us because we're going to the one who has the authority to accomplish all his good purposes. And we do it because that's the model example of the Apostle Paul. And we follow in his example. But then all that says, so then why doesn't somebody believe? If we have this genuine love and we can go to God who believes, who can give faith, and we know that God is sovereign, then how come everyone isn't saved? Well, verses 2 through 4 tell us that. And Paul gives us, in verses 2 through 4, five reasons why the Jew is in rebellion, why the obstinate, unbelieving Jew is rejected, had rejected their Messiah, and in under then God's rightful condemnation. Five reasons. We'll get through the first one this morning. But in verse 2, reason number 1 is because they don't know God. In verse 3a is because they don't know God's righteousness. And 3b is because they overestimate their ability. And 3c is because they do not submit to God. And then in verse 4, it's because they don't know their need. Five reasons. They don't know God. They don't know God's righteousness. They overestimate their ability. They do not submit to God. And they don't know their need. Why are they under condemnation? It's because they have lived in unbelief, believing that they were good enough within themselves to be saved. So what we see here in Romans then 10, 1 through 4, can be described as the attitude of the gospel minister the action of the gospel minister and the awareness of the gospel minister. He is aware of the unbelieving man's rejection of the truth. Let's look at this last part and we'll look at the first one this morning. The first rejection of Israel towards God is that they do not know God. Verse 2, he says it. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance for knowledge. Oh, indeed, Israelites had a zeal for God. Turn over to Romans chapter 2. Paul gives us this zeal. Speaking, as he turns his attention in Romans chapter 2, verse 17, he turned his attention to the Jews. And notice the attitude of the Jews in Romans 2 about themselves. You bear the name Jew. You, you are privileged by your very name, your very title, your very heritage. You rely upon the law of God and boast in God. And you know his will and you approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. 
You know Moses' instruction. You know the law. You know the truth. You proclaim it and you approve all the things that are consistent with the truth. Verse 19, and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness. Verse 20, you're a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You have it all. You have all the privileges. You have, all, you have the word of God and you carry yourself around as guides. Go down during that time, the religious scribe of Jesus' day was a very honored position. To be a scribe, to be a student of the law, to be a studier of the things of Moses and an interpreter of the law was a very privileged position. In fact, so privileged that all of society revolved around it. That These were honored positions to be a teacher of the word of God and an interpreter of the scriptures. So much so that the Talmud described a time when the high priest was called out to go in to give you know, the offerings for the year. And all the people were surrounding the high priest and, and getting ready for this significant event. And a scribe walked by and all the people turned from the high priest and followed after the scribe because he was in an honored position. These men were honored They love to, as Jesus described, blow trumpets when they gave their offerings. They love the prominent seats. They love the positions of prominence and honor. As described by one commentator, these teachers in the day were viewed as having a kind of power that they could mystically see what the scriptures were teaching that they can go beyond the plain meaning into a mystical sense, that they had a greater power of interpretation that no one else had. These were interpreters of God's law and were tremendously powerful. And as described here in Romans 2, they had a high view of themselves and a high view of their efforts. They are, again, teachers, embodiment of knowledge and of truth, they were then, again, able to lead the, the, those in darkness into the light. They were guides. These were prominent teachers. Paul, back here in Romans 10 then, describes them. Notice how Paul describes them. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. They had a great passion for God, a great zeal, a great energy, a great commitment, a great loyalty They were dedicated to God. Their whole hearts were given over in a zeal and a passion for personal sacrifice that God would be prominent. They had this marvelous passion, and yet the condemnation or the weakness is the second half of verse 2, but not in accordance with knowledge. It elevated their traditions, They have elevated their abilities. They elevated their understanding. They elevated their ways above the ways of God. That's what Paul laid out back again in verse chapter nine, verse thirty through thirty-three, particularly verse thirty-one. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. They turned to their own wisdom and their own understanding and their own effort, and they fell short 
of God's righteousness. They missed it. But it wasn't without zeal, and it wasn't without effort. They put in great effort to attain God's righteousness. They put in great sacrifice. They strove diligently. Here's the point. It comes to that oftentimes we're tempted to confuse faith with our passions. If I'm passionate for God, it must mean that I really love him. That if I passionately pursue him, if I'm zealous for him, that zeal, that passion must mean faith. It must mean I believe. Then I measure my quality of my faith by the measure of my passion, by my zeal. Exactly what the Jew did here. We were zealous for God. And listen, a passion for godliness is not a possession of godliness. A passion for what's right is not a possession of what's right. That's what Paul demonstrates here. And again, they had everything. They had the covenants. They had the fathers. They had the promises. They had the oracles of God. They had everything. But they were hostile to the truth. They weren't in walking in faith. They did not believe it. In fact, they had set themselves up over the word of God. Likely, this is what's demonstrated in Matthew chapter 5. If you go back and read Matthew chapter 5, you see Jesus would make this phrase. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Some have said that this is Jesus exalting himself and, and uh, above Moses, like here's what Moses said, but I'm saying different. Well, actually, he was going against the Jewish traditions of the time, and he has gone against their, their teaching of the time, where they simply wanted to make the law external about what was outside, and Jesus takes it to the heart. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks upon a woman in his heart has committed adultery. He shows the extent of the reach of the law beyond the externals into the heart. But on top of that, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, multiple times Jesus said something like this to the religious leaders. Have you not read? Matthew chapter 12 and verse 3. Have you not read what David did when he became hungry? Matthew chapter 12 and verse 5. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath? In Matthew chapter 19 and verse 4, have you not read? In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 31, have you not read? Over and over again, the very men who should have known the word of God, who should have received the oracles of God, who should have believed that message, he's saying, have you not read what was right there? They had, in their zeal, departed from what had been given to them. They had forgotten the very message. They had replaced faith in the message of God with their own zealous efforts. They had departed from the knowledge of God. They had zeal. They had passion. They had energy. They had commitment. They had personal sacrifice. 
They had great attendance. They had religious ceremonies. They had prayers. They had offerings. They had everything that you would want to look for but faith. Everything but belief. They're full of zeal, full of zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to faith. Not according to the truth. You say, well, could that even happen today? Could that even, is that even possible for this to be replaced? To say, absolutely, today. I was watching a documentary. There's a bunch of documentaries on the events in Waco. And I watched one of the documentaries and events of Waco, and they were interviewing some of the ATF officers, uh, guys who didn't believe, but they were coming, and they were coming on that particular day thinking as they were about to deliver a warrant and, and, uh, and draw out David Koresh, they figured they would just show up, give this warrant, and the people would just give over Koresh. And then they were stunned when not only did they not do that, but they took up arms and they even resisted to the point of death and they died in this inferno and they couldn't reconcile in their mind what was happening. It was a stunning event to them to watch the, that these people go to death, their death. They were loyal, they were devoted, they were ready to go to their own death, they, they studied the Bible, they sat under a teacher they regularly engaged in what they believed was a religious worship, and they thought this was their Messiah. This is Jesus Christ incarnate. They had all the zeal for God, but again, not according to knowledge. I mean, if any one of them just picked up the Bible, opened up the book of Acts, chapter 1, they would have learned that Jesus Christ was going to return the same way he left. As he ascended up to heaven, he was going to return in the exact same way, descending. And the book of Revelation would tell us, every eye will be able to see this. I simply would have asked at that time, Mr. Koresh, where's the video of your arrival? I want to see you coming down from the heavens and landing here on earth. Where are the witnesses? Because every eye shall be able to see. Already, right there, out of the gates, you're in contradiction to the revealed word of God. Therefore, Everything else is false. But all oh, religious zeal captures our attention. Oh, because zeal, because passion, because of all this energy, it must be right, because look at all the th- good things we're doing. Well, if it's not in accordance with knowledge, it's not of God. First reason then, these religious leaders and the people who followed after the religious leaders are in the state of unbelief is because they replace faith with their own passions. They replace faith with their own passions and emotions and desires rather than believing upon God. And it's many times God takes us into difficult circumstances and situations that stir up the difficulties and cause us to be filled with fear and unbelief and tempted It's in those moments we have to believe his word. We have to believe his promises. We have to entrust ourselves to what God has said. And that's when the quality of our faith is tested and proven and demonstrated. So Paul here, as he's praying, he says, "I, I pray for them and all these men who are opposing me, all these hostile religious leaders are coming against me. They're coming in great zeal. 
I appreciate their zeal, but they're doing it in ignorance. They're doing it in unbelief. They're doing it against the knowledge of God. They're going against the scriptures. They're going against what God has revealed. It's almost as if they've never read the Bible. Clearly they had, but they are so blinded by their zeal, blinded by their own self-effort, blinded by their own unbelief, that they couldn't even see the truth as right there before them. And this is the first testimony of why they were rejected, because they had rejected God and replaced faith with passion, replaced faith with zeal. And in their zeal, again, they had the right object. Notice what the text says, zeal for God. Not a God, but the God. They had a zeal for the right objects, but it wasn't for the right knowledge. It was by their own wisdom and understanding. This is, the again, just the first reason why they were in this hostile state. We'll see the others next week. What I want us to leave with, and just kind of preparing our hearts for the taking of the Lord's table, is this. We can have the same attitude towards the lost that the Paul has. Genuine desire for their best. A genuine love and care. Filled with a, the same effort, same action. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for your best. I'm going to pray for your repentance. I'm going to pray for your salvation that God would be glorified in you. And then, as we come through this text, we've got the awareness of what's taking place in the unbeliever. The first thing I know in the unbeliever, they may be filled with a zeal, but that zeal is not to replace faith. 